0: Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a Next Steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our Give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. everyone on all of our campuses, for those joining us online, and for our brothers and sisters in the incarcerated church following along with us through CF Inside. Good to be here, but I hate to break it to you guys. Um, summer is coming to a close, and uh, if you didn't know, then you should probably pay more attention. But uh, but this is a crazy time of year. For a lot of us, vacations have ended, and school's starting for our kids, uh, work's ramping back up. It's, it's the time to find new rhythms, and... and, and um, it's such a great time to start a new series at church as, as things ramp back up. And that's what we're doing. We're starting a series called The Greatest this week. Um, so as we do, though, like, I, I think a lot of you are probably in this, in this mode where you're starting a new, a new rhythm. For me and my family, it's true. We've got our, our son starting kindergarten tomorrow, uh, which is crazy and stressful. Be praying for him. We found out that there's a kid in his class with the last name Madsen. And... Uh, <laughs> We've heard some things about that family, so we're praying for our son, but but we are nervous. Uh, It's stressful, it's new, and uh, and so I decided, you know, I'll call call my folks and see kind of how they experienced and dealt with this season as they were parenting me and my sister Brittany, and so I, I called them up and And I said, what'd you guys do? And my mom said, it got so stressful with you guys that at one point we had to write a family constitution uh, toward the end of the 90s just to make sure we treated each other kind of okay for a while. And I said, do you have a copy of that? She said yes, and then she sent it to me. So I want to share this with you. This is the Ken, Pam, Steve, and Brittany Ingold family constitution created January 1998. Uh, apparently that was the season that, uh, that they needed to really hone in here. Um, here's, how, here's how my folks started this. We hereby establish the following articles as our family constitution and hereby resolve to individually and corporately uphold them. Who writes like that to kids? Uh <laughs> Number one, we will be nice to one another. We will practice random acts of kindness. Philippians 2, 1 through 3. Uh, Number two, we will make every effort to not argue with one another. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Number three, we will respect one another's property and privacy. I don't think my parents respected my property or privacy, so... There's that. Number four, we will respect and honor one another. Number five, we will honor God together as a family. We'll go to church together. We we will always seek, and this is how you know it was written in the 90s. We will always seek to ask, what would Jesus do in every situation we face? Anytime there's a WWJD reference, that screams the 90s. Uh, We will communicate. Number six, we will communicate God's love for us and our love for one another. We will recognize that we never get too old or too cool to hear, I think this was written to me, to to hear and say the words, I love you, and to give or receive a hug or a kiss. Yeah, that had to be written to me because if my parents tried to kiss me in public, things were gonna go south in a hurry. Number seven, last one, we will each fulfill our responsibilities within the family. We recognize that each of us has a special role and then some other stuff. It, it was an interesting constitution. We all had to sign it. And, uh, and I guess it held our family together. But, but I do wanna say, if you are a parent and you're looking at me up here on this stage going, he turned out halfway decent, uh, maybe we should start a family constitution for, for our kids. And let me just stop you right there uh, because The only reason I turned out kind of okay is because my parents are very gracious and forgiving individuals. Uh, I did not turn out the way I did because of rules like this, but mostly in spite of rules like this. I hated rules. Like anything that that told me what to do or or how to do it or or anything like that, that was not for me at all. Like my calling in life was to destroy stuff like this. my, my, my whole goal was to, to abolish the law in the Ingold House. Like, that's why I was there. My parents think it's because I listened to, uh, to punk rock music when I was in middle school, bands that, that sang about like anti-establishment and anti-authority, bands like Pennywise and Social Distortion and Rise Against, uh, these, these bands that said, make your own rules. So I did. And and I even listened to ACDC. They told me to break all the rules. Uh, I listened to Bob Marley. He told me to get up and stand up, stand up for my rights, my rights as the Beastie Boys declared to party, right? I think you can imagine what high school was like for me, a time in my life where I fully believed that the rules given to me by my parents were not rules I should have to follow, Rules are demanding. They require a lot of us. So I did not like rules. And I think this describes most of us. At some point in our lives, we rebelled against rules, against the requirements given to us by authority or or teachers or parents or bosses. Some of us are still this way today. We don't like rules. Now, unfortunately, I think this is actually what keeps some people away from church. Church means religion, and religion is synonymous with rules. And I get it. Most, most religions have rules and laws and regulations, some more than others. Like Islam follows the Quran, which is literally a book of law. Um, Present-day present day Jews follow the Halakha, which which it's derived from like written and oral tradition as well as the Mishnah and, and some other sources, and it's it's just rules and laws for how to govern your life. And then there's Christianity. There's, there's Orthodox, there's Catholics, there's rules about, about how to take communion and who can take communion and, and when to get up and when to speak and when to move and when to lean to the left, when to lean to the right, when to get up, stand up, sit down, fight, 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 go Irish. Um, <laughs> college football starts in two weeks and I cannot wait for college football to get going. Um, and then there's Protestants. There's Protestants. We have tons of rules as Protestants depending on which denomination you're a part of. According to the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, there existed roughly 43,000 different Christian denominations in 2012. By the year 2025, there will be 55,000 different Christian denominations. There's a new Christian denomination formed every 10 and a half hours. Why? Why? Because we believe different things about what this text says, and we create different guidelines and different understandings and different different requirements and different rules based on what we interpret through this book. If you look at most churches, and this is true of Cornerstone, you'll see a melting pot of people from different backgrounds and different walks of life, especially a non-denominational church like Cornerstone. Um, Present amongst us today are our Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Pentecostals, Calvinists, Nazarenes, Catholics, not to mention uh, former Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and atheists, even present day, um, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, and atheists, just trying to figure out and discover what does it mean to follow this Jesus person? We come from different backgrounds. We have different understandings. We have different beliefs, even different beliefs about our Christian beliefs, Depending on what denomination you grew up in, there are things that look completely different from the people around you. Like some of us were baptized, and when we were baptized, we were dunked all the way underwater, and we were held there depending on how much you sinned to get all the sin off, and and you were brought up out of the water to represent death to life found in Jesus Christ. Some of us, we were sprinkled with water, and that was baptism. Others of us don't even remember our baptism because we were baptized as little children, Um, For some of us, when it came to worship, we were encouraged to dance and express ourselves through dance as as music was being played, and then for others of us, dancing was prohibited because dancing was the first step to sex, so don't dance because then you're going to have sex. That's some of the traditions we grew up in. Um, And then for others of us, even, even communion looked different because some of us were prohibited from drinking alcohol, so the red liquid that came with communion was always grape juice. And then there's others of us who went back for seconds of communion because that was red wine, blessed by God. Now check this out. There are individuals sitting in the same row as you today, even people in your own community groups who have read these same exact words in this book and they believe something completely differently than you do when it comes to some really big topics. Topics like salvation, creation, same-sex attraction, Divorce? Should women be allowed to preach and lead in a church? What are the end times going to be like? What defines sin? The list goes on and on and on. And because there are so many differing opinions, because we can't always see eye to eye on things that are so closely attached to the most important thing in the world to us, our faith in Jesus Christ, because we think and believe differently, this has caused division in the church disagreement, argument, debate, anger, hostility, and it's actually caused most non-Christians to form opinions about Christians based on the way that we cannot agree with one another and how we try to impose our specific theology on the world around us. I think that at some point in history, Christians started caring more about theology and what theology is correct than how that theology manifests itself in our daily lives. We started caring more about arguing over what Jesus meant by what Jesus said than actually doing what Jesus said we need to do. I'm sure many of us can think of someone right now who this defines really well. Someone who who would rather argue than act on what they're arguing about. I've got someone in my mind, and I'm sure that person is thinking of me as well because we are all guilty of this, right? We've all messed this up at some point or another. There's been a situation or a moment where we cared more about being right than acting right. But it used to be different. You know, the origins of the church, it wasn't just about what Christians believed that set them apart or formed people's perception of them. It's what Christians did, the way they behaved, the way they cared for insiders and the way they cared for outsiders, that showed the world who they were. Behavior that was shaped by two simple rules that Jesus himself declared as the greatest. You know, in Jesus's day, there were 613 mitzvot or commandments to follow. 613 commands in the Torah, in the law of Moses, 613 rules that dictated your life. You think they felt some of the same tension that we feel today when it comes to religion and to to rules that we need to follow. Just people walking around wondering, is this a sin, is that a sin? How far can I go before it becomes a sin? Is it okay if I don't, but what if I don't? I shall, I shall not. What do I do with all these rules? 613 rules that demanded a response. I mean, there is example after example in our text of Jesus engaging in conversation and debate and struggle and interpretation around these rules and what these rules mean and how to follow and live out these rules. And then in Mark chapter 12, there's this guy who walks up to Jesus and says, hey teacher, which is the most important commandment? Out of all 613 rules, which one is the most important? And that's when Jesus said this, the most important commandment is this, believe all the correct theology with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, make sure your neighbor believes all the correct theology too. Now, if I'm not being sarcastic enough, let me just tell you, Jesus did not actually say these words. But before we dig into what Jesus did say, let me give you a little context as to what's happening in Mark chapter, chapter 12. When we, when we read chapter 11, we see Jesus, uh, we, we know the story as the triumphant entry. A lot of us celebrate this during Palm Sunday, and it's when, it's when people were, were laying down palm fronds and, and their coats and recognizing Jesus as king as he entered Jerusalem. And then in chapter 12, when he gets to Jerusalem, he heads right for the temple and when he gets there he's confronted by the chief priests, by the by the rule keepers. And he tells a story that doesn't make them very happy. So they started to look for ways to arrest Jesus. A little while later, another group comes up and starts debating with Jesus about some of their laws, and it completely backfired uh, against them. And then there's another group that walks up and starts challenging Jesus about some other rules, some other laws, and it's not going very well for them either, and they're engaged in this debate. And as the debate continues, there's this individual who walks up and approaches Jesus, and we meet this guy in Mark chapter 12, and we don't know his name, but we do know his profession. He was a scribe, a rule follower, a rule maker, a rule keeper. And he walks by and he sees the the debate raging on between Jesus and these religious leaders. And he notices that Jesus is giving some really good answers in regard to the rules he sees that this Jesus guy knows what he's talking about. He's smart. He's educated. He's wise. He speaks with authority and conviction. And so that's why at the end of verse 28 in chapter 12, here's what the scribe asks Jesus. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Out of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, I don't want to miss the magnitude of a question like this when it comes from the mouth of a scribe, um, in the first century before the arrival of of universal education and, and literacy, scribes were were in high demand, especially in Judaism, where, where the written code of the Torah regulated Jewish life. Scribes were like like rock stars in the first century. They were they were experts in the Torah, and they actually dictated the interpretation of, of rules and how those rules were to be lived out. So it was entirely common for a scribe to walk up to an up-and-coming teacher and say, hey, can you describe Torah in a nutshell? If If you were to say one law, one rule that supersedes all the other rules, what would it be? And that's what this scribe asks Jesus. And in verse 29, we see how Jesus answers. He says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus, in this moment, quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, a passage known as the Shema, which Shema means here, which is the beginning of this verse here, listen. And he quotes this this passage, and it's something that would have been very. Um, easily recognized by any Jewish person because the Shema was recited every morning and every, every evening, every single day by every single Jewish person. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. God is God of Israel. God is God of every individual. Love him with everything. Jesus says this is the most important. Love God with the totality of your being, with all of yourself, with every part of who you are. Give it all you've got, which is a phrase I absolutely love. Give it all you've got. Has anyone ever said that phrase to you? Give it all you've got. Anytime you've competed in any sport or maybe studied hard for a test or, or had something really difficult to push through and work toward, I imagine that at some point you reached out for advice or encouragement from a friend and someone said to you, hey, give it all you've got. I said these words to a friend of mine last week almost for the last time. Um, we were golfing together, and, uh, and, and my friend had a long shot toward the green, and he didn't think he could make it, so I said, hey, give it all you've got, which anyone who golfs knows that this is terrible advice <laughs> to give to another golfer, um, but he did, and I should have thought through this more. I was, I was like 30 yards to the left of him, and, and so I was behind him, but I was also like, like 10 feet forward. And I didn't think through this very well, so, so when I said give it all you've got, I didn't move. And my friend took this swing that had like a reckless abandon to it. Like he just swung out of his shoes, and somehow the ball took an angle directly toward me. Like, like it was a heat-seeking missile, and I was the target. I swear I could see the dimples on the golf ball as it approached my head. Luckily, I'm super athletic and super agile, as you can tell. And I dove out of the way, and I got up, and I brushed myself after, and I, I said something like, what the heck, or something, I don't exactly remember the words. And I said, what, what the heck? And and my friend looked at me and he said, you said, give it all you've got. And I, he was right, those were the exact words That I said to him, and after I've thought about this afterward, one of the things that I've thought most about is that's actually the beauty. The result that happened is actually the beauty of that phrase, of giving it all you've got. Because when you give it all you've got, it's wild. It's fearless. It's fiery. It's free. It's untamed. Which is exactly what I think about when I think about loving God with everything. Spanish priest Ignatius of Loyola referred to this as indifference. And not like disinterest or, or apathy, but indifferent to anything but the will of God. To give God everything else, everything that I have, and, and nothing else mattered. matters. Ignatius um, re- referred to this as spiritual freedom. He said, when I am indifferent to anything but the will of God, it gives me freedom from, from worry of health, worry of wealth, worry of the length of my life. I'm taking my whole being and placing it in God's hands and trusting him with the outcome. This is vertical love. This is vertical love. This is loving God with all that we are. God, all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength, this is all yours and nothing else matters. Now, remember in this, in this story that we're, that we're studying today, the scribe, the scribe comes and asks this question, and as he asks this question, there, there was a debate going on while he asked the question. Jesus and the religious leaders are, leaders are going back and forth, and the scribe kind of butts in and says, hey, hey, teacher, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus answers what the single most important commandment is, and I imagine that the other, the other religious leaders were like, who are you? And okay, now is it my turn to ask another question. So before they could even raise their hand, though, to ask the next question to try and trap Jesus, Jesus says, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not done. There's more. Look at look at the next verse. Verse 31. The second is this: love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what Jesus does right here. He takes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and then he takes Leviticus 19:18, and he brings these two commandments together from the Torah and says, same, same. They're the same. It's like you have to accomplish these two, you have to take these two commandments to accomplish the one will of God. These two commandments in unity with one another, this is what accomplishes the one will of God. Jesus says that love must flow vertically, but love also must flow horizontally. For those of us who have grown up around Christianity, this makes sense to us. We've heard love God and love others for as long as we've been connected to Jesus. But for Jesus' audience that day, this is a revolutionary idea. That the love of God must be complemented by the love of neighbor. That actually loving your neighbor is the chief means of loving God. As the love of God expresses itself in love of neighbor. At the same time, Jesus makes no mistake in the order that he lists these two commandments in. Love of God is a prerequisite to love of neighbor. Whoever does not find the source of love in God will actually not be able to show the unique love of God to those around them. One of Jesus' own disciples understood this as he wrote later on in life. His disciple John said, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us from God through you to others. This is how love flows horizontally to those around us. Jesus says the most important thing out of all the commandments, out of all the law is to love God and to love those God loves. Even in the midst of all of our differences, all of our unique backgrounds, all of our different political affiliations, different cultures, everything that you could bring to the table, everything that comes to mind, regardless of all of that, Love. Or maybe one way we could challenge ourselves is by asking this question. What does it look like? What does it look like to love someone else who God loves just as much as God loves me? You know, one of the things that that we talk about often in church is how much God loves us. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Yes, absolutely true. But that is also true of every human being on the face of the planet. So if I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, if I'm gonna recognize how much God loves me, I also need to recognize that God loves everyone else just as much as God loves me. So what does it look like to love someone else who God loves just as much as God loves me? Okay, let's, let's recap real quick what Jesus said. He gives them one answer. Love God, and before they can ask any other questions, he gives them another answer, love others. He says, these are the most important, but Jesus isn't finished yet. Again, before they can raise their hand and before they can ask another question, they're like, man, this guy's talking for a while. He's given two commandments. We only asked for one. Let's get this figured out. Before they could ask any other questions, Jesus drives his point home with a finishing and devastating blow. He says, out of all the rules, out of all 613 commandments, out of all the shalls, out of all the shall nots, out of all the 10 commandments, out of all the requirements, look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 31. There is no commandment greater than these. There's no commandment greater than these. In the same account of this very interaction that we read in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records Jesus as saying this. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law, all the prophets hang on, hinge, are filtered through these two commandments. You know what this means for us? That anytime we open this book to look for a law, or a rule which this book is filled with rules and laws that are so good at shaping us and guiding us and leading us but anytime we open up this book to look for one of those rules anytime life throws a situation our way and we want to know what is what does the bible say i should do about that what does scripture dictate that i respond how i respond to that situation every time we pick up this text For any topic, what does it say about marriage? What does it say about ethics and morality? What does it say about justice? What does it say about raising my kids, about work, about money, about sex? What does it say about anything? Jesus says that any time we open this book to look for one of those rules, to make sure we view it through the filter, through the filter of love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says everything, everything hangs on this. In a word, the rule, which is probably better described as a, as a lifestyle or a way of being, because, because all of the rules come into this one rule. The word is love. And you probably came to church today like, yeah, we know. But here's the thing about love. The way of love is far less difficult or complicated as obeying a long list of rules, but I do believe that love is way more demanding. I mean all rules require something of us, but I think love, the thing that Jesus says is the most important, love demands the most. Because what messes this up so often, if we miss this, when we don't love God, when we don't love others, when we don't love, the thing that we do is hurt. Whether we're intentionally trying to hurt or not, or not. I mean, this, this could even look like neglect. But when we don't love God, when we don't love others, the thing that we do, the thing that fills the void of love, when we don't love, the thing that we do is hurt. We end up hurting God, we end up hurting ourselves, and we end up hurting those around us. You know, earlier, I I said that when I was younger, I didn't like rules because rules require so much of us. But if Jesus commands us to love, if that's the rule, which by the way, I like this rule. I think this is a good rule. But if that's the rule and rules demand something of us, then let's ask ourselves today, what does love demand of me? What does love demand of me? As you walk away from from our time together today, I hope this is the question that rattles around in your brain. I hope this is the question that convicts your heart that that you just pray about and think about and meditate on and, and, and wrestle with. What does love demand of me? Over the next five weeks of this series, we're gonna take a deep dive into what love demands of us when it comes to our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength when, when we think about how we love God with all of those different parts of our being and then how the love for God expresses itself and releases the love of God to those around us. We're gonna take really, a really, really close look at all of that. But I think a great filter as we go through this series as a church over the next few weeks and probably even throughout our lives is that we look at our lives through this question, what does love demand of me? In light of, of everything we've learned today, and, and just maybe an overview before we really take an in-depth look over the next five weeks or so, here, I think because of, because of what Jesus saying, said is the greatest, because Jesus said that these are the greatest, I think there are a few tangible things that we can hold on to to help us answer this question. Um, I've come up with three, three statements of what love demands. Love demands that I will not be mastered by anything. Atlanta pastor Andy Stanley says it like this. Whenever you're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving someone. Whenever you're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving someone. Here's the deal. No one should ever have to compete with your alcohol. No one should ever have to compete with your pornography. No one should ever have to compete with your drug addiction. No one should ever have to compete with your anger. No one should ever have to compete with your money. No one should have to compete with any of that stuff, especially not God. Refuse to be mastered by anything because if I love God with my everything, then I am mastered by God. And if that's the case, then love demands that I get rid of anything in my life that competes with God. Second statement, I will not do anything to hurt myself. Okay, we've talked a lot about loving God and and loving others, but one thing that I think we we haven't quite addressed yet, I haven't talked about much today, is that when love flows vertically and then flows horizontally, there's gotta be a conduit for that love to flow through, and that is us. If we're going to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, that means we also have to love ourselves. Why? Why? because we have a heavenly father who loves us. If we're going to love God with all of us, we need to be sure to love ourselves and not like arrogant love, uh, not like the love, I don't know how many of you guys would watch Terrell Owens when he used to play for the San Francisco 49ers, but that's a dude who, who constantly said, I love me some me. I think that's taking it too far. Like, like that's probably not the love of self that I'm talking about, but more so a love of self that cares for who we are as God's creation. A love of self that cares for our own heart and soul and mind and strength that doesn't diminish or damage ourselves but pays attention to ourself and loves what and who God has created. Or maybe a better way we can put this, uh, to any of you parents out there, when your kid gets hurt, who else hurts? You do, right? Like, like Jericho can't do anything to hurt himself that does not also hurt me. When that kid hurts, I hurt. You know what love demands of you? It demands that you not make a a moral decision, a business decision, a professional decision, a relational decision that hurts you. Because when you hurt you, you hurt the one and the ones who love you the most. Love demands that we respond to God's love for us and love ourselves. The third one, final one. I will not do anything to hurt someone else. Here's the deal. If I live by this, if I choose to love God and love others, then this means that regardless of how I view the world, I'm not going to do or say anything that hurts another person because every person I interact with is someone that God sent his son to die for. Every person is a, is a person who God loves just as much as God loves me. And if I can be completely honest with you today, as I prepared for this conversation with you, I almost took this part out because I don't think I'm nailing it at this one. Like this is so difficult. This is so tricky because here's the part that got so, that's got so tough for me. If I'm not going to do anything to hurt someone else, that means that even the people who have hurt me most in life, it means that I'm going to love them. Even my worst enemies. These are all people that Christ died for. So when I think about those people who have hurt me most in life, Jesus says your response is to make sure that you don't do anything to hurt someone else because that's someone that I gave my life for. That's so tough. But love demands that I love those people, that I don't hurt those people, that I don't say hurtful things, that I don't do things that that will cause pain, that I won't betray, tempt, abuse, hurt any other person. This is what love demands of me. Love demands that I will not be mastered by anything, that I will not do anything to hurt myself and that I will not do anything to hurt someone else. If we are going to love God and love others, if we are going to follow the two greatest commandments that Jesus said, here they are, this is what our lives look like. And this may seem difficult to live by and it may seem impossible, but here's the catch. We actually have a little more insight than the scribe had that day that was talking to Jesus. We have some more information that that scribe did not have and it actually gives us the opportunity to live this out. Look at verse 32 with me. The scribe says to Jesus, well said, teacher. Which I love that that's what the scribe said to Jesus. Like, hey, good job, Jesus. You answered correctly. I'm sure Jesus was like, dude, I wrote these rules. So the guy says, you are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And look at how he's still focused on rules. This is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus in this moment passes judgment on this scribe that came to pass judgment on him, but Jesus speaks with higher authority because he's moving this conversation beyond rules, beyond the Torah, and, and he moves it toward the kingdom of God, to, towards eternity. And he says to this man, you're not far from the kingdom of God, a kingdom that one draws near to, not by believing correct theology, but by drawing near to Jesus Christ. This scribe is standing a foot and a half away from Jesus. He is standing arm's length away from the kingdom of God, from the Messiah, from the savior of the world, and he doesn't recognize it. He's too caught up in Torah and rules and law, and he completely misses Jesus. Jesus, the same man who said there is no greater love than the one who lays down his life for his friends. And then Jesus followed that statement up by showing us that love demanded something significant of him, that love demanded his life. His love for you and his love for me demanded Jesus's life, and I believe that it demands a response from us as well. To love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, Jesus says, this is the greatest. I think this is going to be a phenomenal series for our church. As we understand and look at what it means to love God with the totality of our being and how that, that love releases Christ's love to those around us. Don't miss a week of it. Why don't we stand together now as we sing and worship the God who deserves our everything. And if it's okay, I'd just like to pray over us before we do so. Let's pray. Father God, I am beyond grateful for the opportunity that we have to live out the love that you've called us to, God that your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness covers our wrongs, God, and it allows us to step into this this love that you've you've created and you've given us. God, love that requires reciprocity, love that requires that that we love you and attempt to show you our adoration and devotion. God, you're such a good, good father. I love you. Thank you for giving us access to the kingdom of God, to your kingdom through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that was paid for us. Let us live out and exemplify and show the world who you are by the way that we love, by the way that we love you, and by the way that we love the, the people around us. Father, this week, as we we go throughout throughout our week, whether whether that's at work or school or or whatever that looks like, God, Father, help us to to wrestle with the question, what does your love demand of us? God, that we would not be mastered by anything, that we would not hurt ourselves and that we would not hurt anyone else. Help us to be like you. We adore you. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.